You're listening to Twitch Asylum Video Game Radio. Asylum Nombre Trace. <laughs> What's that about Nombre? That's name. Uh, it is? Yeah, All I right. think you mean something I else. I think you mean Numero Trace. Oh, okay, Numero Trace. Well, I'm going to uh, Mexico, so I'm uh, practicing my Spanish, I guess. I All right, the big so, vacation. Where in Mexico? I have no clue. How can you not know where you're going? Not really sure. Uh, my wife did all the planning, and I just, I'm just supposed to show up. It's the <laughs> same kind of thing when we go to see a movie. She likes to look at all the previews, and I'm more the, just take me there, I'll watch the movie, and I'll figure it out as I go. I don't, I don't like to know ahead of time. But how do you know whether you're, you're going to li- like it or not? I don't. That's why I don't want to know. See, I like to decide in advance all right, before well. I see it. All right, so what is in this episode? This episode, we're actually doing a couple things. We're looking at advertising in games, and we'll also talk about the golden era of arcades. All right, that's when we grew up and got introduced to games. Exactly. And I want to thank all the people who listened to the last show and joined the forums and said hi. It was great. We also got a lot of hits for the last episode. Checking the bandwidth, it was it was pretty large. So you're going to have to sell some of your gear to pay for bandwidth? Maybe, maybe. But I, I think I know why the bandwidth was so high. Why is that? Well, uh, first I would say that I think we have an excellent podcast. But, uh, that what can't I, be the real no, reason. No, but... that's not the real reason. <laughs> yeah. I, what I really think the, the cause is is that, um, and we didn't do this on purpose, but I was searching in iTunes because I got a new, new PC and I, I was installing my iTunes client and searching for uh, Twit, uh, This Week in Tech. And I noticed that when I did the, the alphabetical search on Twit, uh, what showed up right after Twit? Probably Twitch Asylum. Twitch Asylum. So I think a the lot magic of the of alphabetical order. A lot of the hits we got were from people uh, accidentally misclicking on uh, Twitch Asylum <laughs> instead of Twit. But that's okay. We'll take it. We'll take it. If you if you did do that, please listen to the show. We hope you uh, hope you enjoyed. And on to episode three. All right, let's go. Up and away. See. See. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to The Rant. Today we're talking about advertising in games, and I guess it's probably more of a discussion than a rant because there really is no conclusion to this particular okay, topic. Okay, let's discuss. All right, so there's been a recent, uh, couple of recent things that occurred. One is a couple games got released, Fight Night 3, which I know a lot of people have probably heard has quite a bit of advertising. There's also quite a few articles published recently, especially in the uh, Washington Post, and some of the numbers are pretty fascinating. All right, so tell us the facts and figures. Companies are putting a lot of money into advertising, and they say that it's going to be a seventy-five million dollar market in the United States this year, and will in-game advertising, in-game, right? in-game advertising, and it'll grow to one billion by two thousand ten. So, just a huge amount of advertising. So, my question was, you know, why are they investing so much money in in-game advertising? Well, I think it's got to be that if you're an advertiser, you go where people's attention is, right? So if people are spending those hours that they used to spend watching TV on playing a game, then that's where you got to go to get their attention. The golden demographic, 18 to 25-year-old boys, yeah. that's the and, same thing the TV what, goes after. That's what the Washington uh, Post article says. It says that they're trying to reach the hard-to-reach market of young men who aren't spending as much time watching television. I guess, I guess that makes sense. Right. And so... What I was always curious about is, like, what do people think? What do gamers think? And I've actually searched the web and looked at stories and read people's feedback, and it's I guess it's kind of a mixed response. Certain people think it's acceptable if it's in line with the game. For example, I think I'm one of those people. For example, like, PGR3 is great. A good example of how I would like in-game advertising to be because... When you're driving around Las Vegas, it's great that all the casinos look exactly like the casinos are. It'd be weird to see these odd names on the casinos as you're driving around Las Vegas. But a lot of other people think that just any kind of advertising is bad because they're spending $60, and then you're getting these blatant advertisements in it that maybe don't fit really well in the game. So there's really two sides to that Yeah, well, I think if a game takes place in the real world... Like PGR or Fight Night 3, well, the real world does have advertising in it. So it's realistic that you would see maybe a billboard on the side of the road or you would see an ad somewhere or you'd see a real casino. 
Um, what I don't want to see is advertising in fantasy-based games. Like if you know Mario were to drink a Coke or something, I don't think that's good. I, I don't want a, the illusion of that fantasy world to be spoiled by the intrusion of ads. See, I think that advertising equals capitalism equals America. And people who don't like advertising, as much advertising you can get, are communist, un-American <laughs> traders. And they're the same kind of people who would record shows on TiVo and skip the commercials. That's un-American, too. Oh, I have a TiVo. I do yeah, that all the time. I yeah, I don't think many people share your opinion, Woody. Well, <laughs> I'm a patriot. <laughs> all right. The thing that's interesting about this article in the Washington Post is they focus primarily on electronic arts, and they discuss Need for Speed and, and Fight Night, obviously. They focus on a particular person at electronic arts. Her name is Julie Schumacher. And what's her title? Her title is Director of In-Game Advertising, which to me is a warning sign. You have a, a position solely there for in-game advertising. That, that just red flags come up to Well, me that means they're taking it seriously, and, and that's a source of revenue for them. Right. Also in the article, they discuss, in Fight Night 3, the whole Burger King thing. Right. Now, Fight Night 3 is funny to me because I have the game on Xbox 360. I've played through a little bit of the career mode. I've probably done a dozen fights. And when you started telling me how many ads there were in Fight Night 3, my reaction was, well, I've played the game and there really aren't that many. But then when we sat down and looked at it together, there are. And I think all it was is my brain kind of automatically tuned those things right. out. Like, I just ignore the logos. I'm looking at the boxers anyway. I'm not looking right. at the logos. Yeah, and what Julie Schumacher said about that is that, quote, we knew it was over the top, that the consumer would get it, she said. It works because we didn't pretend that it wasn't an ad. And to me, that's ridiculous, because when I'm playing that game, I know there's a certain portion that she's referring to, which is apparently a bonus thing that I haven't done, where that BK dude with the fake head runs out and <laughs> grabs your boxer or something like that. I have like not seen do, that. They do for, like, the football advertisements and stuff. But where it annoyed me more was when I was actually boxing in the ring, there was a Burger King logo in the center of a ring. On each post, there were three Burger King logos. In the background, there were four Burger King logos. No matter what angle I was at in the boxing ring, I had at least six to seven Burger King logos visible. And to me, that's just ridiculous because how many times have you seen Burger King that prominent in a boxing match? To me, that's not realistic. But the other ads like Everlast, that doesn't bother you it, because no. it is more related to boxing? If it was something that was actually there, like if I was at a boxing match and I saw these advertisements and they were typically there to me, what would maybe make more sense is if it like said MGM grand something or Trump, that, something that made the, the environment more realistic, right? Something you would expect to see at a boxing match. And the funny thing is the colors in the Burger King logo totally clash with the, the way it looks like they almost just popped it in at the end. They're like, what advertisers can we get? Oh, we're getting Burger King. Let's just paste those all over the ring and make that look like it's part of it. But it doesn't. The colors are totally different. It's way but off. And but it's logos have a certain color. You can't just take the Burger King logo and make it green or something no, just because that would fit. But, I think but they the could, background was like bright white, whereas yeah. you know the rest of the, the rest <laughs> right. of the environment was kind of gritty Maybe or gray. Maybe they could mute it a bit and right. make it mix. Okay. But even still, I, I would say that Burger King is probably not the right thing for a, a boxing arena. Okay. Now there's another one in Mark Echo's Getting Up, which we talked about last episode. Uh, there's a product placement there where you go around and you collect songs for your iPod, and they actually call it an iPod. They don't say for your MP3 player. They say iPod. And this one didn't really bother me at all because, again, within the world of the game, it seemed believable that your character might have an iPod because, you know, iPods exist. You're in the real world. That sort of person might listen to an iPod. It didn't bother me at all because it did seem to fit. All right, so the, uh, the other thing I would say is I was listening to G4 this morning uh, or watching G4 this morning. And they had that show Cheat On, which I, I never watched, but it was just kind of on in the background when I was doing something okay. else. And they were talking about cheat codes within Need for Speed where you could unlock the Best Buy car. And you could unlock some other car. And it's like... All so this the stuff, unlockable things are branded items? Are branded items, yeah. And to I me, did not know about that. That's yeah, weird. it's really stupid. And it's like, do I really want to unlock the Best Buy car? And there's some other brand, too, that you could unlock. But to me, that's ridiculous. Oh, Best Buy as in the store? Is in the store, yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the actual things that used to be cool to unlock are now in-game advertisements. How much is this is based on whether or not you personally like the brand? Like, if it was a brand for something you thought was really cool, would that make a difference? No. I, the thing is... No, because I, I like Burger King. Yeah. And still, those ads look ridiculous. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Burger King. I will say that now. But I, I don't care. It doesn't fit. Even if... I, I'm not a big fan of Everlast either, but I would say that if that was in Fight Night 3, it's completely acceptable because it fits. Or okay. if it was the Trump Taj Mahal. Or if it was the MGM Grand. That would all make sense. But uh, it doesn't make sense to have Burger King in, in Fight Night 3. 
Now, another question I had from reading this article is, are these people that want their advertisements in games going to change the way the game is being developed to fit their advertisement? In other words, in the Washington Post article, they talk about the fact that some advertisers are too squeamish to see their logos in a fiery crash. So I could foresee that a particular game developer has this whole sequence of events they've built up, and they say, we're going to have a crash like this, you're going to be able to do these things, and an advertiser comes along and says, hey, wait a minute, we'll give you the dollars, but we don't want it to be like that. So are they going to actually change the game to allow them to put their advertisements in it? That that just scares the heck out of me. Right, and that's where I'd have the problem. It's It should be separated, the, the just like newspapers or magazines, where the editorial department is supposed to be separate from the advertising department, and they're not supposed to talk. But you would never know that, Woody. You would just play the game and say, huh, that's oh, interesting. Right. They all cheat. But yeah, it's it, yeah exactly. You don't know. And the fact that you don't know, they haven't changed the game. But I think it'll affect them because they will make worse games. Yep, that's probably true. And I guess the place that that's most apparent is in GTA. Uh, you guys are big GTA fans. Yeah, I'm a big GTA that. fan. And, and this is one of the counter arguments for in-game advertising, I think, because the fake ads and the fake brands in GTA are so funny and they're so entertaining. Like the store Ammunition, where you buy your guns. If those were real brands, it just wouldn't be as fun. I think the fact that they're parodies and they're, they're these very interesting, ridiculous stores and, and concepts just makes the game that much more fun. But what's to say in the next version of GTA they need money, so they'll put those in and maybe it's oh, not... Oh, they don't need money. They oh, got okay. tons well, of money. Yeah, they're probably a bad example. But that's the point, is that they may change the games to reflect what people uh, want from an advertising perspective. Well, and I'm sure in the Grand Theft Auto, they didn't use the real car names because they weren't allowed to. But that was a big mistake for the car makers, as far as I'm concerned, because those are some of the most popular games of all time. There was actually another article, too, besides the Washington Post in Gamma Sutra, and it basically said that Midway is going to incorporate dynamic real-world advertising into numerous titles in association with Double Fusion in-game advertising. So... These, it's not like an isolated case with electronic arts. A lot of these companies are moving to put in-game advertising in. I think it's going to be there. I think it's inevitable, just like it's inevitable that TV has advertising and product placements in movies. We're just going to have to live with it and figure out, you know, if it's that bad, don't buy the game. If it, if, right. if it annoys you that much, buy a different game. I guess my opinion on the whole thing is that I really don't want it, you know. I understand if it fits within the game, like PGR 3 is a great example where I think it works well, but Fight Night 3 is just way over the top. And it's kind of, to me, it's like watching the movies or watching television when you get these advertisements in there. Like, for example, you've, you've seen all seen the movie where they have the label turned right at you. It's just, you know, here's this movie, but you have to focus on this advertisement right in the movie, you know, and they specifically put this scene in just so you see this particular brand. And that's really irritating to me. Or even watching something like, not that I ever watch this, American Idol, where they have those oh, huge, I love like, American Idol. you know, garbage can-sized Pepsi uh, glasses face toward you that they never really drink. It, it's totally <laughs> annoying. Yeah. And and I just don't want to see that in games. I, I'm it a breaks scared. you out of the story. Right. You stop following it. If it happens in a movie, you're instantly like, oh, wait, there's a Pepsi can. Oh, wait. I'm watching a movie, and then you lose the fact that you're in the story. So I guess, uh, in summary, it's not—it's probably not going to go away. But the only way that I think Tom Tom said it best is—is is we just don't buy the games. Like for example, I rented Fight Night Three. It has so much advertising. I'm not going to buy the game. It's a great game. I'm not going to buy it because I don't want to support those kind of activities where it's blatant advertising throughout the game. On to the gaming moments. So I recently canceled my World of Warcraft subscription. What? Um, you, you did? You, I thought you yeah. just started playing yeah, you that. Were like, it's the greatest thing ever. I'm a 34 level mage. With <laughs> Why did you cancel? Thing, and I like to do that. What's the deal? What happened? Did, did too many people talk to you? So basically, I just I got sucked in, and it was clearly I got to the point where it was just repetitive. The graphics were wonderful, but uh, it just it's the same thing over and over again. So it was just time to quit. All I really wanted to do originally was take a look at what everyone was talking about, and it was great. It was interesting, but I was done. <laughs> so how how long did you actually play? Just a few weeks. Probably six weeks. Okay. Like yeah. that. So you got the flavor. You figured out what it was all about. Yep. And it was time to go. So what else you playing? Well, I got to play Warlords. 
Warlords, uh, I don't know what that is. Classic Atari 2600. Oh, the 2600 Warlords. Chris is being a little facetious. I was playing it on his newly built Atari 2600, which I'm sure he'll want to talk about it sometime. I don't want to talk about that this show, but we'll talk about it more next show. Uh, 2600 Flashback 2, Woody and I, we're, we're playing Warlords today, and uh, like I said, I did beat him the second game. So. so I walk into Chris's living room, and Chris and Woody are sitting there playing Warlords, and they're really into it, and they're really competitive, and they're like shooting the little thing around. It's great. It was so funny. So Chris won only because I beat him the first game, and then the second game, I threw the ball and killed myself. So at no <laughs> point was I beat due to Chris's skill. Right, but who won? Scoreboard. Scoreboard. Scoreboard one-to-one. Okay, that's right. Well, after the podcast, I'm going to beat you yet again. Yeah. Well, what are you playing, Chris? What are your gaming moments? It's a good question, Tom. Like I said earlier, I'm getting ready for this trip to Mexico. So instead of focusing on console stuff, which I did do some console stuff, I've been focusing a bit more on handheld. So because my wife has taken my uh, Nintendo DS hostage and I'll probably never see it again. What is she playing on there? I don't know what she's playing right now. Nintendogs? I could be. So I've been looking at a lot of PSP games. And and what is the nombre of those games? (laughs) (laughs) What is the nombre? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I've been playing a lot of Exit lately. I don't What's know if, Exit? It's a game by Tato, who's one of my favorite game makers of all time. And it's essentially a puzzle-type game that isn't a puzzle-type game. What do you do? All right, so it's like got this comic book-type feel with kind of these stick people. And the, the main dude, his name is uh, ESC, all in caps, Escape. Oh, that's good. Escape. Yeah. And so the objective is he tries to escape these different situations. And there's different... People within each level with different skills. Like there'll be injured people, there'll be people that are older, there'll be kids. You have so to... is this a top down view or what does this thing look it's like? It's more like a side type scroller type view. Okay. And essentially what you do is you, there it's timed and you have to escape in a certain amount of time. So you have to figure out how to move objects, how to make these people do things to let you clear the level. So it's really a puzzle game, but it's it doesn't feel like a puzzle game, and it's really highly addictive. And the thing that is kind of nice about it is, A, it's an original PSP title, which on its own is, like, incredible. Unique. You never see those. And the other thing that's nice about it is it's not too difficult to clear a level for, like, each day or, you know, a couple levels a day. If I'm saying if you don't spend much time on it at all. There's like 110 levels, and you can download like 110 additional levels wow, online. Wow, that's good. So, yeah, it's, can you make your own levels? I don't think you can make your own levels, but it's, it's a pretty cool game. Hmm. So I, I'm, I'm kind of liking that. I can't wait to uh, get on the plane so I actually start playing it a bit more. The other thing I've been playing on the PSP is I got uh, Mega Man Maverick Hunter X, which is similar to the uh, Super Nintendo title of, I think it's Mega Man X on the Super Nintendo. But they've upgraded the graphics quite a bit. Uh, the the only thing that I would say about the game is is it's exactly as I remember, and maybe almost too much exactly as I remember, because what will happen is you'll go through these large uh, fights, you know, you yeah. fight all your way through the level, get to the boss character, and then you're fighting the boss character, and if you lose to the boss character, you start the level again from the beginning. So there's no save point between uh, you know, clearing the whole level and fighting the boss. And, and Yeah, that's how games used to be, is you right. screw up and that's you start from the beginning. It's exactly as I remember. But it's sort of <laughs> annoying now in this in this day and age where you can save along the way. It's it's definitely more challenging, though. And if, if you're a fan of the Mega Man series, it's definitely something to pick up on the PSP. The other things I've been playing lately on the 360, obviously, Geometry Wars. I'm still playing Geometry Wars. And last episode, I'd said I would get to uh, 2 million, and I got to about 1.4 million, so... That's not bad, but you know, you broke your promise of the 2 million. Right. Well, here's... I, I have a I have an answer for that, Tom. So, the deal is, is that I'm a software developer. So you just slipped your schedule, is what I you're saying. I slipped my schedule. I'm us- it's usually like 100% <laughs> more than your original, or twice your original estimate. So I said I was about 1 million, now I'm about 1.4. Assume by the next episode I'll be at 2. So I just underestimated the particular task. All right, you heard it here, and you can go see his gamer card on twitchasylum.com forums, so you can tell whether he really lives up to this. Exactly, although I'm going to be in Mexico, so it's going to be a bit difficult. <laughs> okay. That's no excuse. All right. The other game I've been playing, I played Call of Duty a bit. Just getting back to that, trying to still clear the American campaign on on the veteran difficulty, which I know you haven't done, Tom. And I've been playing a bit of Fight Night 3, even though I hate it. I still have the rental. And since I rented it at Blockbuster, I get uh, 30-some days for only $1.25 more. So I'm going to keep it for those 30 days and play it. Cool. Well, speaking of Fight Night 3, one of my gaming moments was, after playing Fight Night 3 quite a bit, I rented uh, Dead or Alive 4 for the Xbox 360. And... 
just maybe from the comparison to Fight Night 3, I hated Dead or Alive 4, even though the graphics are great. And the reason I hated it is it's so quick. I mean, in Fight Night 3, you got 10 rounds of fighting, and, you know, there's all this time to decide what you're going to do and, and change up your strategy. And Dead or Alive 4 is like, blam, 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 KO. Like, the whole fight takes 10 seconds. Have and you played online? Yeah, no, I haven't played online. Because I hear the online is pretty interesting. Maybe I'll have to try that. But I just couldn't get over the fact that it's just way too quick after Fight Night 3. And I guess I like a more, uh, a little slower paced game. And so one of my other moments was I finished Cameo. I wanted to talk about this one thing in Cameo that just blew my mind when it happened. There's a level in Cameo where you're out in the middle of a giant battle and the trolls have brought up these catapults to attack your shrine and you've got catapults and you're going to fire at their catapults and you ride up on a horse and you get off your horse and you're messing around with the catapults and there are all sorts of hundreds of orcs and elves around. And I'm in the midst of doing all that and all of a sudden a troll rides by on a horse and I kind of do a double take and look at it again and I think, wait a minute, that's my horse. The troll stole my horse. And it made me so mad. That was like the most emotional I've gotten about a game in a long time. It made me You have furious. definite issues, Tom. Because <laughs> I was like, how dare he steal my horse? I'm going right. to go and get that back. I started chasing that guy. I was running. And it just gave me, it gave me an immense feeling of satisfaction to just jump and knock him off my horse and just beat him down and right. take the horse back. And I think a game really is succeeding when it can involve you to that level. Get the emotional involvement. Yeah, get the emotional involvement. And part of it is, I never would have expected that to happen. We've kind of been trained that things like horses are really just a play mechanic that makes you move faster. It isn't really a horse. You know, it's, it's really just a way of moving faster. But when somebody steals your horse, all of a sudden, you're like, I was attached to that horse. I like that horse. That's my horse. You can't take it. Right. I like to also point out, Tom, that I played that same level in Cameo, and my horse got stolen, and I just ignored it. <laughs> you just don't like animals, man. No, I mean that. Well, no, I, I don't think that's it. I just, yeah, I had no emotional attachment to my horse. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So I finished Cameo. It's a great game. I think it's an original game on the 360. Um, I really want to play Condemned because that's another original game on the 360. Condemned rocks. That's my favorite game on 360. So, but Cameo was just a delight to play. I highly recommend it. The final one for this week for me is I got a game called Rebel Star Tactical Command for Game Boy Advance. And what this is, is years ago there was a game called XCOM UFO Defense on the PC. Do you guys remember that? No. No. It was an excellent turn-based tactical combat game. And they How do we really, miss that, Woody? They really had a great game Don't engine. turn-based world. And a great... The, like the play mechanics and the way that game was balanced was really great. And the same people who worked on that game made what's essentially a very similar game for Game Boy Advance. And to be able to have that kind of tactical turn-based combat on a portable is really fun. I think it's a great game. I hope it doesn't get overlooked because with all the games out there, I think Rebel Star Tactical Command might not be the best name. It might not get people's attention. But it really is a fantastically fun game. It's probably the best turn-based tactical game on a handheld. On to the news. News you can use. It's time for the news. Take it away, Tom. IGN reports that Bungie founder and co-creator of Halo, Alex Seropian, is helping to produce a new TV show called X-Quest. This is going to be a crossover between massively multiplayer online gaming and a reality TV show. And it sounds like the things that players do in the game can influence the events of the show. And also, the players who do the best in the game get to be contestants on the show in Season 2. Uh, I'm confused. I don't get it. <laughs> You're confused about what? I don't get the whole thing. The whole concept? Well, they don't give a lot of details about the exact way this is going to work. Which probably means they don't know either. Maybe they don't know. So they went into the producer in Hollywood with a pitch saying, let's combine massively multiplayer online role-playing games, which are the biggest thing in the computer world, with reality TV, which is the biggest, cheapest thing in television. And the producer said, Golden. I think now, now that you they, say that, I think that you're right. And, that now it's like, have, and now they have to have an idea. Reality shows are hot. MMOs are hot. Let's just make both at the same time. But it could be good. I mean, if I was playing a game and the game was no, good... No, Tom, it can be good. If I liked the game and I knew that that would influence what happens, because 
people call in to American Idol, right? And that's just making a phone call. Making a phone call is not very fun. If you got to do something interesting and that would influence the outcome of the show, that might be pretty cool. All right. What else is going on? There's a video online of Will Wright's new game, Spore. Spore, yeah, I've heard of that quite a bit. The video is quite impressive. It shows the fact that the game starts out at a sort of microscopic level with bacteria-sized creatures, and you evolve them into larger and larger creatures, and then eventually they, they form you know, towns and civilizations, and you take over a whole planet, and then it goes all the way out to interplanetary travel and a whole galaxy. So you're going on the whole range of scales from microscopic all the way out to an entire galaxy. And apparently when you go to other planets, you're actually seeing content that other players have created. So that's like their world, and you get to see what evolved on their world. It sounds kind of cool. And the Do video you get to battle against them, have clashes of civilization. Yeah, you can have battles. You can uh, attack their world or their countries or whatever. Similar to the first news story, I'm a bit confused. I mean, until I see the game, you know, it's like hearing somebody's marketing speak. I right. can't really visualize it until I... I essentially play it. So I've heard a lot about this game. I just I until I play it I really don't don't know what it's gonna be like. This one seems interesting. I wonder if it'll be protested since it involves evolution. Probably. And that's kinda you can't talk about that anymore in today's world. Speaking of that, Woody, that kind of uh leads us right into our next news topic. Apparently there's a game coming out called Left Behind, which is based on religious themes. And there's a series of books called Left Behind, and it's about the Christian rapture. and It's about life after the rapture. Life yeah. on Earth after the rapture. And so they're going to make a game about this where you get to be sort of fighting against the army of the Antichrist or something like this. And apparently it's a very violent game. They said it's going to be rated either teen or mature, and you're going to get to go and sort of roam the streets of New York, uh, blowing away the armies and the Antichrist, which consists of people who aren't Christians or something like this. Right. So this is kind of odd to me because we hear so much from religious groups about violence in games and not wanting to have violence in games and protesting the sale of games to minors and these kind of things. And yet, I bet it's going to be acceptable if there's a violent game based on Christian themes, much like we saw in the movies when they came out with... Uh, the Passion of the Christ. Passion of the Christ. Which should have been NC-17. Exactly. If, it, if the subject matter of the movie was anything but Jesus, it would have been NC-17 in a heartbeat. Yeah, no, I, That's told, probably I true. totally agree with that. And to me, it's so hypocritical that they bash on things like GTA, and then they come out with a religious game, and it's probably going to be fine. And we're just conjecturing, because we don't know that there's not even going to be a backlash from religious groups on this. But there might be. I mean, they are not necessarily the same people. But the same people protesting GTA are not necessarily the same religious people who are behind this game. Well, in fact, I think this is worse than Grand Theft Auto or any other game that's out there since it targets specific people. I mean, it's one thing to just have violence in video games. It's another thing that they're going to have violence attacking non-Christians. I mean, let's turn it around. Let's sell a game that where you go around killing Christians. How's that? How's that? How do they like that? I'd buy it. <laughs> You'd buy oh, it. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, uh... What Woody said is not on behalf of everyone at Twitch. That is correct. No, but <laughs> you, you understand the point that you can't... It, it's even worse than Grand Theft Auto where it's random violence. It's, they're advocating going around killing a specific class of people, non-Christians. Right. No, I totally agree with that. So, one surprise piece of news is that Rockstar Studios, the infamous creators of Grand Theft Auto series and other violent video games, have decided that their next game is going to be about table tennis. Yeah, it's a 360 title, I believe. Xbox 360 ping pong, essentially. Right. What do you guys think of this? Would I'm you totally buy psyched it? for it. I think it's good. I think it's a good idea because they established the category of Grand Theft Auto style games. Now everybody's trying to imitate that. So what do they do? They go out and do something totally different, totally original. And that's yeah. exactly the right approach. They can't just keep mm. doing the same thing. I don't know if you can call something that's essentially a remake of Pong original. But, <laughs> well, but perhaps no one remembers Pong. But Pong wasn't 3D. Pong didn't have the <laughs> graphical and power of the Xbox 360. Right. And, you know, think what they could do with broadband multiplayer Pong. Yeah, it should be interesting. I mean, it's kind of surprising to me that Rockstar came out with this. But to me, is this a real game? Like, are they going to sell it for top dollar? To me, this is probably something that's going to be... Either a lower cost game or something you're going to put on the Xbox Live Arcade. That's a very good point. So, I don't think it's going to be Xbox Live Arcade personally, but the price point is a really good issue because if this comes out and it's sixty bucks, no, it won't be. I would think twice about buying it. I but I, I like the idea. Yeah, I read somewhere that it was going to be lower cost. I believe so. I, I'm kind of excited for it. I think the multiplayer should be fun. It'd be great if you had four people. Yeah, at doubles. Once, that doubles would be that would so be, be kind of fun, but. 
it, like Woody says, it, it is essentially Pong, but it is multiplayer. So it should be interesting. It's, it's surprising that Rockstar did it based on their history, but we just have to wait and see what happens with this story. What's interesting to me is that almost every console has a version of tennis, but not ping pong. And Rockstar says the reason why is that ping pong is so much more fast-paced that it's harder to do. And now with the 360, they can do it and really do it right. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see. Do you guys play ping pong in real life? No. I used to be competitive until there was a tragic accident where I broke my pinky. <laughs> I've never been the same since. I thought it was the steroid so scandal little... <laughs> that, that got you out of ping pong. <laughs> no. <laughs> that was an entirely separate incident. So the next story is that Lionhead Studios is downsizing, and they're probably best known for the movies in black and white, too. Uh, my wife actually loved the movies. Thought it was a great game. She logged several hundred hours on the movies, finished it, did uh, all the different scenarios where you build up your movie studio to like a five star studio, and right. you also make your own movies. But apparently they've uh, they've lost quite a bit of money. Uh, the movies didn't do too well. I guess Black and White Two didn't do so well. So they had a, apparently a company meeting, and they're going to uh, downsize the company. I think it means the loss of approximately 100 people. And so this is sort of a sad story to me because it's a great game. The movie, movies is a great game, and it's also kind of a strike against any original titles. Just like we're seeing uh, with like um, Psychonauts and Tim, yeah. Schaefer, Tim Schaefer's game where, where uh, they lost a lot of money, Majesco, I guess. And now you're seeing that with Lionhead Studios. So, but do you think it was that those games didn't have enough Burger King logos? It, it could be. But <laughs> but the interesting part about it is that they say that they're actually going to rework Lionhead Studios and work for developing a AAA world-class game. So I'm not sure exactly how that relates to the layoff, but apparently they're going to reorganize and get that out. So it'll be interesting to see how they, re- they rebound from that. So another news story is that uh, I guess this guy named David... Eatery. He has a blog, and uh, so it's obviously not a, a reputable news source. But what was interesting is he posted to his blog. He, I guess, he goes to MIT, and he was talking to other students at MIT. A lot of them have signed on with game companies, and their salaries are lower than people that were going to places like Oracle or which is, Microsoft. Which has always been true. It's always been true. But apparently that gap is now narrowing. Really? Yeah. Really? So it's it's becoming there about the same uh, salary or, or within a, a few right. thousand dollars or whatever. Because so. I was always interested in the gaming market too. But it was it became clear early on that to work as a game programmer, it was going to be the lowest paid of all the programmers and the highest stress. See, because everyone wants to be a game programmer. That's what I don't get. Is It, it seems like it takes a, a high level of talent that you're putting in an enormous number of hours. It does. But the thing is, the people who want to go there, they want to work there so they're willing to sacrifice their own salary. The game companies know that, so they won't pay Yeah, it's them. supply and demand. If you have a lot of people competing for the chance to be a game developer, they're going to be willing to make some sacrifices to do it. Do you think that's true, though, that more people compete to be game developers and want to go I to, do. like, an Oracle? I do. Saying, oh, I want to be an Oracle consultant or something like that, that's not not as cool as saying, you know, I developed Halo. I mean, it's... it's who the hell says they want to go program databases? I mean, seriously, <laughs> you might right. do that. You might get good right. at it. It might even be interesting eventually. But who comes out of college saying that? I think the whole thing of wanting to be a game developer is a lot like wanting to be a rock star or, you know, something like that or a best-selling author. You know, you want the glory. You want to be able to say, I worked on the game that everybody's playing, that everybody's obsessed with. So people will will compete for that chance and in competing, they'll be willing yeah. to accept a, a little lower salary or longer hours for the chance to do that. Right. Perhaps salaries are going up, though, because it's become such common knowledge that conditions as a game programmer are terrible that the good people are no longer applying. So they're going to have to actually start raising the salary to get the good programmers in. Yeah, definitely. Welcome to the Retro Respect section. This time we're focusing on the golden era of arcades. And this is kind of prompted by the fact that a couple shows ago, Woody, we were talking about arcades, and Woody mentioned that to our listeners that a lot of them may have not even seen the arcades that I guess we remember when we were young. So it seemed to make sense to have a topic to kind of discuss what arcades were like and the history of the what we consider the golden era of arcades, which I guess existed from maybe 79 to 83, maybe even 84. 
Right, and video game arcades do still exist in some places. You can go to them. There's some in Las Vegas, but they just don't have the same atmosphere now that they than they had then. Today, arcades are a lot different than I remember. I mean, it's kind of like the same thing that happened to video stores. You had these, you know, hole-in-the-wall video stores everywhere, and they eventually became Hollywood and Blockbuster. Right, yeah, that's a good analogy. That. So with arcade games, it used to be the same kind of thing. I remember that all the gas stations near my area, they converted themselves to arcades. And you, I could ride my bike down the street and pass like four or five hole-in-the-wall arcades right on the corner. Uh, and that 7-Eleven had arcade games and Plaid Pantry had arcade yeah. games. And the little uh, market down the street had arcade games. So arcade games were everywhere. And you're right about the sort of quirky nature of the arcades. Right across the street from my high school was an arcade that was a converted Skipper's Fish and Chips restaurant. And they, they tore that out and, and made it into an arcade. But the, all the counters and stuff are still there from the restaurant. It's awesome. So one thing that was kind of cool about the arcades of the past, and I think you missed today, is really the atmosphere that existed in those arcades. And that's, that's probably what I remember most vividly. The excitement, too. Right. So they were typically dark. A lot of times they'd have kind of this neon color, which would would kind of flash on the floor. Yeah, so it's this dark room full of machines with flashing lights and neon and sounds, and it's kind of like going into a casino is now. Yes, it felt much like a casino does for adults, yeah. And there's a mix of people there that I think... I remember there were people that were my age, which I was like, you know, 9, 8, 9, and 10. There were older people that were high schoolers, and there were even adults. Yeah. I think all these people were there because the games were much easier to pick up than the games of today. And it made for a funny atmosphere because... You could have a situation where a 10-year-old was playing a game against a 35-year-old and winning. When you'd walk in, you'd get this, like, huge explosion. Even when you, like, approach the place, you'd hear the sounds. You remember the sounds of the arcade yeah, games? You'd yeah, hear, like, yeah. you know, Donkey Kong Jr., pinball machines, all these things with these same kind of sounds. And the, the track screens as you approach the door, you open the door, and it'd be like an explosion of all these sounds all at once. And there was so much excitement stepping into an arcade because you never knew exactly what would be there. It wasn't like now where you hear announcements of games months in advance and you know exactly what's going to come out when. Back then, you go into an arcade and you might see some brand new machine that you'd never even heard of, and there'd be people crowded around it because it was new, and you'd go up and just be like, wow, what is this? i got to play this. i got to see what this is all about. Right. You'd walk into an arcade, and there'd typically be you know, the people straggling on certain games that were less popular, and then there'd be these like crowds of people around certain games. And you didn't know, is that a completely new game? I have to go check that out. Or is it that this person is doing so well that everybody's wanting to see them get the high score? And some of the arcade traditions were like putting your quarter to reserve that you had next game. Right, so you, you go up to a game, somebody's already playing it, and so to indicate that you get the next game and they can't just sit there all day, you put your quarter up on the machine, like, resting against the glass. That was how it worked. It, was, it always kind of annoyed me, because I'd be playing a game and some dude's arm would, like, appear in my line of vision putting <laughs> their stupid quarter on my game. I'm like, dude, just wait, I'm almost done. Man, it just really annoyed me, but I think I'll get over it someday. So do you remember going into the arcades and looking at a particular machine to make sure your high score was still there? Yeah, totally. I mean, I'd always go in to see if I still had the high score on Donkey Kong Jr. That was a big part of the arcade tradition is you'd enter your initials and make sure nobody had beaten you or, or see how you were doing compared to everybody else in the neighborhood. You entered your initials? Yeah. Yeah, most of the time. Always entered the initials. And the games back then were so different from each other, and they were so new. Nowadays, everything's sort of a sequel, or it's a variation on something you've already seen before. Yeah, back then, they didn't have to invest the huge dollars, so they they had this ability to create innovative games. And instead of trying to copy everybody else, developers back then tried to be as original as possible to come up with these new types of concepts we hadn't seen before. And what's kind of interesting is that I walk around my garage where I have a lot of games that I've collected over time, and I just look at the different control schemes, and that kind of just says they were original. For example, if you look at games like Battlezone, you had dual controllers. Star Wars, you had the little uh, cockpit-type controller that you right. used. Right, Centipede, you have the trackball. Tempest, you had the spinner. Paperboy has the little handlebars on the bike. Lunar Lander had the thing that you push up when you need to land. Yeah, they're all different. They're all something new. And again, because you didn't know what you were going to find in an arcade, you'd walk in and it would be something very surprising. Like, wow, there's this game where you grab bike handlebars. Right, and even though the control schemes were different, they were always easy to pick up and play, uh, with the exception of Defender, which is a great game, but it was much more difficult, which kind of the, that was the game that everybody tried to be good at because it was kind of the macho type game uh, right. to play at the time. 
And a lot of that sounds a little bit like what they're trying to do with the Revolution, or at least Nintendo's trying to do, to have this new type of control scheme that's completely different from the current control schemes that are out there. Now, another big factor in the arcades back then was that, at the time, arcade games were an experience that you really couldn't get at home. No, I mean, I, my 2600 just couldn't compare. And you look at games like Pac-Man, you compare it to the arcade game, it was totally different. But I still bought all those games for the home console, oh, yeah. hoping mm-hmm. they would be as good as the arcade game. But you go to the arcade and the graphics were just far superior to anything you saw on home consoles. So about all that you have now in the arcades that you might not have at home is some of the things like the force feedback steering wheel. But even then, people have those at home now. Um, the the consoles that tilt. I mean, there's some special bells and whistles they can do in the arcades that are very expensive. But most of those things are available at home. Well, there are places like GameWorks you can go and you actually sit in the cars. And there's ones where the whole 10 people each sit in their own race car and race against each other. So they really do in the arcades now to make money. They have to do... They have exactly. They have to give you the experiences that aren't possible to get at home. Right. So my biggest question is, you know, I played games back, you know, up till eighty three, eighty four, and then I stopped playing games. So why did the market collapse the way it did? I think there's a variety of factors. One of them is the rise of the home game consoles and the, those getting better, so that people could have a better experience at home, like the ColecoVision and the, and those. There were more at home. Partly it was just a fad, though. I mean, if you think back through what has been the popular entertainment. In the 1950s and 60s, it was bowling. There was a huge boom for bowling, and it came about when they invented the automatic pin setter machine. And for a while, bowling was the hobby that people did. It was cool. Everybody did it. Like, you watch Happy Days, and they're at the bowling alley. That's how it was. And I think arcade games went through the same kind of a fad. From what I've read, it seemed like it was maybe oversaturation because people would buy these expensive games, and they'd expect them to last for a couple of years. But then, of course, Atari and these other companies are producing games all the time because that's how they make money. But after you've exhausted all the 7-Elevens and these third-tier type markets, they don't want to buy the games. So I think eventually the market just collapsed on itself. And to add to that, you know, people tried to address this purchasing new games thing by making things like, you know, we mentioned before, the Neo Geo, where you had, like, pluggable cartridges and JAMA, which is a standard. But the problem with creating a standard like that is you get away from these obscure control input techniques and those kind of things. So what used to be innovative was now stifled by the fact that you had to have something that conformed to this typical JAMA-type setup. It had to fit that mold. Fit that mold. So I think all that kind of led to less creative games, and the rise of the home market and the lack of ability to sell those systems really brought it down. So what's interesting is to compare those arcade games of the past with, with today's games that we play, typically on home consoles. So so how are they different? I think we touched on this earlier, that they're not really willing to take the risks anymore It's because it's too expensive to produce these games. They're not willing to take those risks unless it's something like Xbox Live Arcade, where they have something like Geometry Wars, which is a quick game, which sells for $5. There's also not the experience of watching other people play. Some games do support letting you watch other people play, but in the arcades, you kind of had no choice but to do that. If you were waiting in line to play the game next, what were you going to do? You're going to watch the other guy play, and maybe you'd pick up some strategies and figure out what was going on. It's really not the same as being there. Like, it's all virtual now, which is kind of cool. You can connect all these people, but it's not the same as being right next to other people. And for the person playing, it was a great experience to have all those people gathering around you, seeing that you're really (laughs) kicking butt on this particular game. You really don't get that experience anymore. When people gathered around the machine while you were playing to watch you, it was kind of like being a celebrity. It was like being up on stage or something. You know, you were you were making this public performance of your skill. Right, and you just don't see that today. See, I like the lights and the sounds and the games that were so much better and unique. And But I hated all the people. <laughs> I, I would have been fine if there had been no one in the arcade because they, they just bothered me. But you're just antisocial in general. Well, yeah, but they, I don't like the smells, too, from some of those people. <laughs> So, speaking back about the arcades, what were some of our greatest arcade memories? What do do you have, Tom? Well, I can remember the first time I ever saw Pac-Man. And, you know, I walked into this place, and there it was, Pac-Man. And you have to remember that at the time, all the games so far had been about shooting. You know, there was Space Invaders, uh, Asteroids, you always shot at things. So I was watching this person play Pac-Man, and I'm just thinking to myself... This was a huge mistake. This game's never going to be popular because who's going to want to play a game about eating? You just go around and eat these dots? That's it? That's that's not macho and cool. You don't get to shoot anything. And I was so wrong. Of course Pac-Man became popular. And eventually I grew to like it too once I got more used to that style of gameplay. But 
At first, I thought Pac-Man was just shockingly bad and wrongly thought out. One of my biggest memories, I guess, is I was in uh, Hawaii on vacation with my family, and uh, I had this ability to kind of smell our, out arcades from long distances. I'm not sure how, <laughs> but I, maybe I heard the sounds or, or whatever, but I was able to, to determine where they were. So we're at the International Marketplace in Oahu, and they had an arcade there. So I, I walk into the arcade, and I just saw these huge amounts of people surrounded around a couple games. I was like, wow, what's going on? Somebody's really doing well on this game, or maybe it's a game I haven't seen. So I walk up there, and I look at the graphics, and I almost passed out. I was like, wow, look at the graphics on this game. They've like moved yeah. to a level higher than anything I've ever seen before. And the game was Dragon's Lair. Now, come to find out, eventually, it was laser disc based Which is why the graphics look so good. Why the graphics look so good. But at the time, like, the first instance that I saw that game, it was, like, amazing. Like, it, I just didn't know how to comprehend that level of graphics. In right, because it was like you were watching an animated movie in the theater, almost. And actually, at the time, I was like, wow, Hawaii has a lot better games than the continental United States. <laughs> but come to find out, I get back, there is Dragon's Lair, uh... In Oregon, so I started playing it, and I played it all the time. And I, I it cost a lot of money. I, I thank my parents quite a bit for that because uh, it was a, like fifty cents a shot, I believe, to play that game. But I got really good at it, and I could finish it every time. And probably my fondest memory of playing arcade games back in the eighties, I used to go to a place called Eastport Plaza, and they had hydro tubes right next to the arcade game. Do you remember hydro tubes? I love the hydro tube. Hydro tubes were like these things. It's a water slide, basically. like a water slide, but it was fully covered, and you'd be like go on the outside of the mall. The little tubes would surround, then you go down and you splash. But they were right next to this arcade, and what what did they have in front? They had Dragon's Lair with the TV on top. So what I would do, and, and the TV it, on top allowed people to see it from a greater distance right. away. Keep in mind, I was eleven or ten at the time, so I was kind of a jerk back then. And I would walk up to the game, and there'd be some older guy who's like, "Have you ever seen this game before?" And I'd be like, "No, I've I've never seen this game before. I played it." <laughs> so they'd say, "Well, here, let me show you how to play," and they'd go for a little bit, and then they die. And then I'd start playing, and I'm like, "Wow, I'm getting lucky, dude! I can get like, whoa, look at I, I, this game's just really easy to do." And after about you know 30 minutes, I'm to the end to the Dragon's Lair segment, and at this point, <laughs> I've got a huge crowd of people. People have walked over from the hydro tubes to watch the game, and eventually, I kill the dragon. And I, you know, I've seen it so many times. I'm so cool that I don't even have to watch the ending sequence. I just walk off. And as I'm walking off and my mom's taking me and we're leaving, I can see this huge crowd of people watching the ending sequence on the monitor as I defeated the dragon. So, For those who haven't played Dragon's Lair, it's quite a difficult game where the timing has to be just precise and it helps if you memorize exactly what's going to happen. And right. It's very tough. I've never finished Dragon's Lair. So that's basically my uh, biggest gaming memory. So anything else, Tom? Anything else you remember? In 1986, I was playing video games in an arcade in Tokyo with some of my friends. And there was this weird game. It wasn't even really a video game. It was called, I think, Punching Ball. And what it was is a punching bag, and you would hit it, and the harder you hit it, the higher your score. And I think you only got to hit it twice or something. It was really silly. But it was a great game to blow off steam, and especially if you'd been drinking or something, it was kind of fun to play. And so one day, I walk into the arcades with my friends, and I'm in the middle of playing some other game. I think it was 720. And my friend Jim comes over and he says, you'll never believe the score I just got at Punching Ball. So I turn around and I look, and sure enough, there's some really high number on Punching Ball that's higher than either of us had ever gotten before. So I decided, well, I can't let Jim beat me at this game. So I go over there, put in my coin, and I just haul off and just hit this thing as hard as I can. And as soon as I hit it, I get a, a great score that beats the score that was there, but my wrist just hurts really bad, and I know something's terribly wrong, like I've broken my wrist or something. The next day, I go to the doctor. I find out I have a sprained wrist. I'm walking around with my arm in a sling and everything, and I see Jim again, and I say, oh, dude, you know, I, I think I sprained my wrist. You know, it's really bad. It hurts. And Jim says, well, you know... I never even got that score. That was in there when we walked in. Nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was my uh, Tokyo Arcade stories. Don't play punching ball when you think you have to get the high score. So another one of the memories I have is uh, there used to be a movie theater called Rose Moyer. Do you guys remember oh, that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I used to go in there, and they, for some reason, I guess it makes sense, they'd have a lot of the arcade games that were movie-based. 
So I'd play uh, Star Wars. They had the Star Wars sit down there as well as Tron. Oh, yeah. And because it was really dark, you know, the neon would show on Tron and on Star Wars to sit down. The vector graphics would light up. It was just always awesome to play those games at Rose Moyer. And, you know, they used to have the boards up where you could actually see the movies that were playing at the time you were playing the games. And it was like this atmosphere where the, game, the movies are going, you're playing the games. I'm like in the movies. It was just great to play there at Rose Moyer. And I love those two games, Star Wars and, and Tron. Tron was a good one. I always liked that one, too. So I think that about wraps up episode Trace of yeah. Twitch Sound Video Game Radio. Uh, I'm going to be in uh, Mexico, but we are going to have a show immediately after I get back. We're going to be talking about the Atari 2600 Flashback 2 and various other topics. And we are actually been working on quite a few new things for upcoming shows, so please stay tuned as uh, there's going to be some surprises coming soon. Visit our forums at twitchasylum.com. Rock on. Some of the music provided tonight was from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. You can check them out at music.podshow.com. We'll see you in two weeks. And the funny thing is, when you compare that with, like, what Microsoft's trying to do with Xbox Live, you know, with PGR3, this attract mode, it's not really the same. It's not the same as walking to an arcade and seeing a crowd of people and... and... <laughs> Whose phone is that? Yours. Because <laughs> his phone has left the building. <laughs> All right, so... It wasn't really the same as going to an arcade and seeing a crowd of people. Yeah, uh, I just threw my phone. I got Chris admit. tossed his phone out the door, which was a great moment in uh, Twitch Asylum history.